smart, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And remember, the only thing these corrupt politicians will understand is an earthquake at the ballot box. That's what they will understand, and they're going to see it. To keep America great, we have to reelect a president who's been fighting for you every day. If I got a subpoena, think of this. If I got a subpoena for emails, if I deleted one email like a love note to Melania, it's the electric chair for Trump. Thanks to the president's stand, Mexico has done more to secure our border in the last 10 days than the Democrats in Congress have done in the last 10 years. Tonight, I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. And now, Stacey Washington. <laughs> oh my goodness. How can you not get excited when you hear, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump cracking jokes and just laying things out ever so clearly at that rally. Yeah, we're still geeking out about it. The rally, we're still in rally mode. We've still got our Trump gear on, our Trump tennis shoes, our Trump, you're the best mom out of all the moms in the universe, the very best, I tell you, there's no one like you, mugs, and <laughs> the t-shirts, the flowery Trump hats. You know I have all the gear. I even have a Trump scarf, like a, um, it's like a handkerchief, but it's a, it says Trump on it, and it's, and it's black. It's like Harley Davidson wear. It's, I, I know, I know. All the best stuff. So uh, welcome to the show today. I'm so excited. It's Friday. We have so much to talk about, and we're going to get into a ton of things. First off, I want to make sure that we have our uh, encouragement. We're going to dive into that right now, right off the bat. And today we're talking about Titus 2, 11 through 15. And so let me let me give you that real quick. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us all from wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So we're supposed to be inspired to obtain useful motives to godly living. So that brings us to a question, doesn't it? Why is it that so many people profess to be a Christian, but so often don't act like it? Like on Sunday, they look totally churched out. Their hands are up. They're singing. They're smiling. They're kind. But then afterwards, during the week, they're acting in ways that would bring shame and reproach on Christianity. Um, they're not diligent and successful in our Christian walk. This, this could apply to anyone. So no judgment here. So perhaps, maybe, when we keep falling into ungodly behavior over and over again, it's because something is lacking. We need to have what it is that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, this is not to condemn, but rather to exhort and encourage us 
to seek after those things that would help us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So we can't just practice godly living for ourselves. We have to teach our children and by example, teaching others as they watch us live how to live godly as well. So how do we say no to ungodliness? How do we learn to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives? Well, Titus 2.11 indicates to us that it's the grace of God that brings salvation and which has appeared to all men. So first off, notice that no one's left out in this opportunity. This has appeared to all men. I know that this grace is manifested in Christ, and I'm sure that this involves the Holy Spirit and God's grace. These are the manifestations of his love and of his power and of his presence. To put it into practical terms, perhaps this suggests to us that a couple of vital concepts that we are to learn, which are to motivate us to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives are first, the fear of God. Fearing God is essential. Listen to the advice the apostle gives to keep our lives in line. In 1 Peter 2.17, he says, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Proverbs 1.7 tells us to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So we, we know now that we have to make a godly, prudent decision Every time we're doing decision-making, we have to be solid. We have to be prudent. And we also know that we have to live godly through understanding that the, what type of fear this is. So we're not talking about fear like running and hiding or the fear that I feel when I see a spider or a huge worm when I'm gardening. That's kind of irrational and ridiculous. We can't run from God. The fear we're talking about here is awe reverence, and respect that leads to prompt obedience. Deuteronomy 31, 12 through 13 says, assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the aliens living in your town so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing into the Jordan to possess. So this tells us that fear of the Lord is desirable and teachable. It's learned by hearing the law of the Lord, things recorded by God in the Old Testament in this case. Jesus also teaches this in Luke 12, four through five. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Woo, that's kind of tough, isn't it? Jesus never pulled any punches. He was always straight to the point, no chaser. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. So according to Solomon, fearing God in a sense is basically what life is all about. Fearing, revering him, being in awe of him, loving him, obeying him. Boom, there it is. This fear amounts to a recognition that we are totally in God's hands and will be judged by him. Luke 23, 40 through 41 says, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. The thief knew that Jesus was innocent. Psalm 33, eight through 11 says, let all the earth fear the Lord. 
Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purpose of his heart through all generations. And we know that God spoke this world into existence. But is it that we just see everything around us, the tiny you know, snippets of grass and the thousands of different types of flowers and the variation in the color and the beauty, the different sky, never the same cloud in the same place twice. Everything that he's created, no two people exactly the same, even identical twins have distinguishing factors. And we don't, we don't stand in awe of that. We don't revere that. If we truly understand everything that we see, everything that we breathe, everything that we are is created by God, how can we not fear him and stand in awe knowing this? And if the earth isn't impressive to you, if you don't think that everything that we see around us on earth is stunning, you need only to fire up your laptop or your big screen television, turn on your smart mode and start Googling the stars and look at the different heavenly bodies that have been created throughout the universe and the enormity of it and the scale we're like a pinprick in size compared to some of the medium-sized stars that exist in the universe the known universe things that can be seen with telescopes made by man and all of those things exist outside of our reality we know they're real and they were created by God such power Power like that has to be respected. God controls the the head of the king. He deposes nations. He sets up new governments. We have to fear him. So the fear of God could perhaps prompt people to look for security, um, for whatever will enable us to be pleasing and acceptable in his sight rather than bring his anger and vengeance or make us a stench in his nostrils. We don't want to be that. Hebrews 10 31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fear of God will prepare people to respond readily when a way is opened or pointed out for them. The grace of God that has appeared to all men has said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Fear of God is also the motivation for people to dig into the word of God so that We know what it is that God expects, demands, and requires of us as human beings. Fear of God enables people to be aware and convinced of God's reality, his power and authority, his purity and holiness, and that he holds true to whatever he says. He is not a man. He cannot lie. So how do we come to possess a fear of God like that? Well, one way is by hearing and reading what God can do and what he has done. In Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, it says Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people I will be honored. So In and of ourselves, we can't even approach God. We can't withstand his sheer holiness. We need Jesus Christ for that. He's the one who his his propitiation, what he sacrificed on the cross, enables us to be clothed in white and to be made right and holy and righteous to be able to approach the throne of God. 
Joshua 7, 25 through 26 says, Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up large piles of rocks, which remain to this day. And then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And we all remember the story of Achan in the, in the Old Testament. But the New Testament also speaks of the same God. Romans eleven twenty two says, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Okay, so not playing around. In Acts 13, 9 through 11, Saul, who was then called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elmias and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him. And he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I mean, and there's other cases. Herod was smitten with worms. Ananias and Sapphira, um, they they were killed. (laughs) I mean, they lied. They were killed. So we have to learn to fear God. We have to make this personal. We have to understand that fearing God is not something for weak people or something that, um, you know, obviously unbelievers mock us when we say we fear the Lord. But it, it is for, for them not to understand because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. We have to fear him. He's watching. He knows our every thought and action, and he cares for us intensely. We have earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, rain, blight, drought, pestilence, and still we persist through the grace of God. Who is in control of history? Who sets up and deposes kings and rulers? Who's able to throw souls into hell? where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and there is no escape. This is not pretend. It's not stories or fairy tales. We have to take it seriously and let it affect our life and move us to constant godly living. And as important as that is, we also have to understand the essentiality of loving God. So as we close out this segment, um, I want to cover the second part of this, which is what is what what else do we need to learn how to properly be motivated to godly living. Well, of course, we have to learn to fear God, as I've just explained, but we also have to understand the essentialness of loving him. So we'll cover that on Monday. Um, But that's the first segment of the show. So God bless. Hang around. There's more Stacey Washington right after this. I've been leading tours to Israel for over 25 years. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. I started going to Israel with my dad in the 80s and uh, learned how to lead tour groups. And so been doing it ever since. And now my wife has joined me, Allison, and we love taking folks who support AFA and listen to AFR to Israel. And we'd love to have you come along with us as well. That's in March of 2020. We're letting you know ahead of time because we know that people need as much advance notice as possible to get ready for a trip like this. So if you want to go with us to the Holy Land in March, go ahead and get the information at twholyland.com. That's twholyland.com. 
All the information on the March trip to Israel is posted there and hope you can join us. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Like you, I sometimes get bored with routine. I, I like variety. It causes me to step up and focus. Challenges and new experiences more often than not force me to grow. They call me to a new, deeper level of commitment. Too many Christians have settled for a nice, comfortable, predictable Christianity. But God is looking for uncommon, extraordinary commitment. That's why I'm drawn to 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. Listen to these words. It's really the eulogy of Josiah. And before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's amazing to have God say that about a man. There was no one like him, no one. He was a man of courage and obedience. He lived a distinct God-honoring life. The expression, he turned to the Lord, means he gave his life back to him. His life wrote his obituary. I wonder what kind of obituary are you writing through your life? What is your life saying right now? Do you have an uncommon commitment? Is there distinctiveness with your walk and relationship with God? Are you reflecting that commitment to Him, or are you just mirroring the culture and environment and the status quo? God has called us to make a difference and to be different. Now, here's what I want you to remember today. Christianity is not just a way of life. Our relationship with Christ is a call to an uncommon commitment. Break out of the mold and lay it all on the line. That's exactly what God is calling each of us to do and to be. Legacy Moment is a production of Moody Radio. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. We continue to follow some breaking news of an alleged terrorist plot here in Pittsburgh. According to the FBI, a man was working on a plan to bomb a church on the north side in the name of ISIS. Rachel Monjovi is live at that church now. Rachel? Well, according to FBI agents, this is the church that the man was planning to attack. It's right in the middle of a residential neighborhood here in Perry South. We just got done talking to a group of workers who have been out here since this morning. They say they saw dozens of FBI agents and many other law enforcement here earlier today. Federal investigators tell us 21-year-old Mustafa Musab Alawemer of Pittsburgh, who is also a Syrian refugee, was arrested today and is charged with plotting to attack this church, the Legacy International Worship Center, in the name of ISIS. He's facing multiple charges, including attempting to provide material support and resources to the Islamic State of Iraq. A couple people we spoke with in this area are very shocked to hear about this man's plans. This is a small Christian church, again, right in the middle of a residential street. We are hoping to get additional reaction from some of the neighbors who live very close to this church. We will continue following this story as this investigation develops throughout the night. Reporting live, Rachel Monjovi, KDK News. Hey, welcome back to the program. So that is the is just still a story that's roiling the news cycle. And and for me, I really I go back to what we were talking about when the president originally he, he was inaugurated and he immediately moved to stop 
uh, certain nations from being able to load us up with their their un- unwanted refugees. And the countries that he targeted were the same ones that were targeted by President Obama. And it was really not a big deal. It was something that the left hated just because Trump did it. When Obama did it, they were as quiet as church mice. But when Trump did it, it was a racially motivated, uh, you know, just absolutely dastardly deed. This is one of those individuals who never should have been able to come into this country because he hasn't been properly vetted and he's not someone who belongs here. And I know that's something that really ticks people off. When you say someone doesn't belong here, then the first thing that happens with a Democrat is their emotions are engaged. And instead of asking, why doesn't the person belong there? What parameters enable a person to belong here? Why would I say that based upon the facts as they stand, the person was going to bomb a church? No, I must be, uh, I guess the person is of Islamic descent, so I must be an Islamophobe. No, I must hate Muslims. No, it's none of those things. I don't think we should, as a matter of routine, bring people into this country who want to harm us, people who are unable to assimilate. And we know who they are. We know where they come from. And we understand the reasons they're, they're here to destroy our country. Now, you might say, as some Democrats do, that they're mentally ill. That means they don't belong here. We have enough of our own mentally ill people. We're all full up with crazy. We don't need any more. We shouldn't ever import things that we already have in overabundance, if you understand what I'm saying. And yes, I'm talking about people, but not everyone belongs in America. If everyone belonged here, it wouldn't be America, would it? So this is kind of crazy that the very thing that President Trump said would happen has happened because we were lax in our standards and bringing people into the country. Now, I don't want... I, I, I don't want emails or people getting upset with me because I'm telling the truth about this. Um, it's just not, it's not something that I'm willing to, uh, you know, you got a problem with me saying that. It sounds like a you problem, a personal problem. Now, listen to the name of this guy, Mustafa Musab Alawimer. He was planning a bomb attack on a church in Pittsburgh. He's a 21-year-old resident of Pittsburgh, arrested for one count of attempting to provide material support and resources to ISIS. Again, why isn't he over in the third world, living on nothing, eating sand, and, and basically understanding that what he supports, that's what it brings. Notice none of the Islamic countries are taking these refugees in. He planned to bomb the Legacy International Worship Center using a weapon of mass destruction, and he bought a number of items that could be used in making a bomb. So, again, why are we bringing people who want to bomb us? Why are we bringing them into this country? All right, so we have a couple of stories to run down here. First of all, the Supreme Court has actually issued a ruling saying that the giant priest cross war memorial does not violate the Constitution. Now, this has been one that I have been so, it's so annoying because these, the large crosses that if you've ever driven across the country in any section, you'll see sometimes within view of the highway um, that these are huge crosses. Sometimes they're at churches, sometimes they're on private property, sometimes they're in parks and they're memorials to our war dead, some, you know, what, whatever. They're huge and they're really beautiful and they each have a different like reason why they were erected and put where they are. 
And so this is a 7-2 ruling by the Supreme Court. Ginsburg and Sotomayor were the dissenters. They ruled that not only the Peace Cross can stand, it does not violate the Constitution. They sent the case back to the lower court to follow their guidance. And Ginsburg read her dissent from the bench. (laughs) I'm laughing because they're saying that's kind of rare. So what? I'm glad she's still kicking and she can read stuff from the bench. You know, that's fantastic. So again, back to a couple of other breaking things. Um, So there's also this Democratic aide that just got four years in prison for doxing GOP senators during the Kavanaugh hearings. I remember I purported on this guy getting uh, convicted. He was a former aide to Senator Maggie Hassan, sentenced to four years in prison on Wednesday for hacking Senate computers and releasing personal information online. About five Republican senators out of anger spurred by their roles in the confirmation hearings by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, So this guy's name is Jackson Costco. He's 27 years old. And U.S. District Court Judge Thomas Hogan said that this sentence for Jackson was needed to send a signal that criminal harassment driven by political motives would be punished severely in an era marked by extreme political polarization. Hogan said from the bench, we have a society that has become very vicious. It's very concerning to the court and unfortunate that you played into that. So in April, Costco pled guilty to five felonies, admitting that after being fired last year from his work as a systems administrator on Hassan's staff, he repeatedly used a colleague's key to enter the office, install key logging equipment that stole work and personal email passwords, and downloaded a massive trove of data from Senate systems. He also acknowledged that after growing angry about the GOP's handling of the Supreme Court nomination, he released home addresses and phone numbers for Senators Lindsey Graham, Orrin Hatch, and Mike Lee on Wikipedia. After initial press coverage of that doxing, Costco released information about Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. Hogan, the judge in this case, said it was a rather vicious offense that was totally unjustified and we need to send a message out there. We need to have some deterrent and community understanding. So prosecutors had sought a 57-month sentence and lawyers for Costco had asked for a two-year prison term. Prosecutors got 48 months of the 57-month sentence they were asking for, which is pretty good. Now, Costco did apologize and blamed his state of mind back then on substance abuse. He said he was using cocaine, psychedelics, and alcohol on a daily basis. Another Senate aide from the same Democratic senator was also charged yesterday with two misdemeanors misdemeanors in Costco's scheme, aiding a computer fraud and evidence tampering. So kind of like, whoa, four years. Um, That's big. That's really big. Uh, So we're going to be following along to see if anyone else gets a little bit of that, um, you know, smack down because it's needed. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm absolutely excited that that happened. Why? Because it's justice and we need to have that. Um, so we did mention a couple of days ago on the show, the contentious fight in the New York Senate where you have Governor Andrew Cuomo actually signing into law this bill, giving driver's licenses to uh, illegal aliens. Now, I see this as an opportunity because, you know, having some time to think about it, um, it becomes really evident that the driver's licenses are something that New Yorkers on the whole don't want illegal aliens to have. And this isn't just uh, 
this isn't just Republicans. If more illegals stay and have driver's licenses, the more likely they are to vote. Um, And so if you understand how this is working, the Democrats are advertising. They're saying, look, um, if you want to be a lawbreaker, vote for the Democrats because we'll help you break the law and we'll help you break the law as long as you vote for us. It's, It's a transactional type of a thing. So there's a total lack of public support for granting licenses to illegals. A New York Times article painted the issue as suburbs versus sophisticates, but even some Democrats recognize that supporting the bill could come back to haunt them. And Republican State Senator John J. Flanagan went further. He recently said that passing this bill would be a colossal political mistake for Democrats. Nick Langworthy, the incoming chairman of the state Republican Party, called the bill a product of the extreme left and that showed extreme disdain for the rule of law. Even county clerks denounced their proposal. County sheriffs warned that it would basically limit their ability to enforce traffic safety. So only time will tell if this is truly going to become a liability, as it has been called by some. Um, But again, any person, regardless of political party, should be opposed to rewarding people who break into the law and steal jobs and benefits and, um, you know, basically are are, uh, interlopers, unwanted house guests in America. Anyone should be against that regardless of political persuasion. This isn't about politics. It's about what's right and what's wrong. We can't afford this current influx. So pivoting over to Joe Biden, and this one's kind of funny to me, um, and also ironic because you remember a couple days ago, you have Democrats testifying uh, at the House panel on reparations about how first it was Democrats who supported slavery and segregation, but then the party switched and now it's Republicans who support all of the awful racism. They actually said that from the floor of the House. I, I, I get to a, a place where I wonder how much of a brain deficit can there be for Democrats? And then they make statements like that. And I realize this isn't something that's quantifiable. It's, it's of orders of magnitude greater than anything we can actually measure. So you got creepy Uncle Joe, hair sniffer extraordinaire, uh, basically making another huge, huge mistake. So way back in the 70s, and this, this is, he is the case for term limits, by the way. He is the case for term limits. And if you're one of those people who doesn't believe in term limits, you think the voters should decide. You look at the history of voters and understand that voters don't kick people out of Congress. Um, Joe Biden's the reason why we need term limits. But way back in the 70s, he served with segregationist Democrat senators. Herman Talmadge, James Eastland. So he basically, um, he was mouthing off, not thinking through what he was uh, talking about. He was at a New York fundraiser on Tuesday, and he pointed to long-dead segregationist senators James Eastland of Mississippi and Herman Talmadge of Georgia to argue that Washington functioned much more smoothly a generation ago than under today's broken hyper-partisanship. He said, quote, we didn't agree on much of anything. 
He described Talmadge as one of the meanest guys he ever knew and said Eastland called him son, though not boy, a reference to the racist way many whites addressed black men at the time. Wow. Of all the people he could praise, he had to go way back there and praise these guys. So, of course, some people, you know, deservedly, because they don't understand what he was saying, or maybe they just agree with him, are defending him and saying, you know, it's okay. He was talking about friends. But, of course, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, who are desperately clawing each other for the teensy little sliver of the vote that they've got going on, they're condemning Biden for saying what he said. Now, of course, because everything is forever in the age of the Internet, you've got uh, reporters now dredging up things that he said back then. So he was speaking to a Delaware reporter back in 1975, Joe Biden was, and he said, quote, I do not buy the concept popular in the 60s, which said we have suppressed the black man for 300 years and the white man is now far ahead in the race for everything our society offers. In order to even the score, we must now give the black man a head start or even hold white men back to even the race. I don't buy that. I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what the situation is today, for the sins of my own generation. And I'll be D-A-M-N-E-D if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago. End quote. So remember, it was just a couple of days ago that the Democrats, his party, the party he hopes to lead as president and has led as vice president and in the Senate and, uh, you know, just numerous roles for almost 40 years, Joe Biden has. They held a just ridiculously shameful hearing on reparations. Basically, they want to victimize every black person running around today who is currently in, under their wing thinking they're a victim. And the rest of us who are wild and free and don't believe we're victims, we all need to be corralled in and stuffed into like one of AOC's concentration type camps and made to believe that we're victims told to put down our industriousness and the power of our minds and to start looking at our skin and worshiping our skin and asking the government and white Democrats to bail us out. So he's, he's, I mean, Joe Biden has said so many crazy things, so many, but this, it, it resurrects some of his old views. And I hope to goodness gracious, Donald Trump has, he's got all these things that he's making up they, they should be mocking up the commercials right now the memes all of it this man is so ultimately easy to take down joe biden is he doesn't even know who he is he's been in politics so long all right we'll be right back stay there what does it take to live an uncommon life here's former super bowl winning coach tony dungy with today's uncommon moment Christ is the classic example of the role model we are called to be. A tour through scripture reveals a Christ who was always finding people where they were and taking them where they needed to be. He was always seeking people who thought they were nobodies and making them into somebodies. Jesus is the example we're to follow, the person we were meant to be like. We won't reach perfection until we see him face to face, but we are called always to be moving in that direction. God didn't just glorify himself by sending Jesus into this world. If we will let him, he glorifies himself by sending Jesus into this world through us. 
Tony Dungy, author of the popular Uncommon book series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. That's CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Jim Stanley, General Manager of American Family Radio, here to tell you that change is on the air. Uh, Excuse me, Jim. I believe the saying would be, change is in the air. Well, that's true, too. We've got some big changes coming up, and you'll hear them on the air. Oh, right, boss. Go ahead. As I was saying, changes are coming, and you'll hear them on the air beginning Monday, June 24th, here on American Family Radio. So, do they affect me? I mean, are we cool here? I mean, we're cool, right? Pastor Joseph Parker. You know, obviously when things are going well, it's much easier to have an attitude of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. But even when things are going difficult, it's important to know too, there's never a time it's inappropriate for us to thank and praise God. Now some may ask, well, what about when you're going through difficult times, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death? We can have two different responses. We can worship or we can whine. Tune in to the Hour of Intercession, weekday afternoons at 1 Central on Urban Family Talk. It's The Candidates with Brett Baer. Wayne Messam, mayor of Miramar, Florida, released a video announcing his candidacy for president of the United States. I'm passionate about the American dream because it's not a fictitious thing for me. It's real for me. Chris Steyerwalt, Fox News politics editor. His parents were Jamaican immigrants. What I can't figure out is why the heck he's doing this. Dana Prino, host of The Daily Briefing on Fox News. You're going up against a president who's running for re-election who already has so many advantages. I don't think there's a kind of deep-pocketed donors that he would need in order to find some sort of groundswell of support. Britt Hume, Fox News senior political analyst. His candidacy owes something to a certain kind of Trump factor. Donald Trump had no obvious traditional credentials to be president of the United States until he ran. And then it turned out he's now the president. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Brett Baer. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I, I respect her greatly and I feel very close to her in terms of philosophy, but of course she was wrong. You cannot compare to what the Nazis did in concentration camps, unfortunately, is without any historical. I mean, it's a horrible moment in history. There's no way to compare. Oh, welcome back. So, still tallying up all of the different people who have uh, come out against the comments by Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and she's she's still defending herself. She's still making um, kind of kind of equivocations about what she said. And I get it. I mean, why why own up to the horror of of the, the comparisons that she's made? But that was uh, Representative Queller ripping. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. That was actually de Blasio. So we have audio from Representative Queller as well that's coming up. Um, so the, the number of people who are condemning her is stacking up. De Blasio, uh, he says that these things are not the same. They're entirely different. And if she wants to be respected, she has to, you know, she has to just admit it. That she, she made an error here. Um, and then I, I want to also just point you to, and this is so Chuck Todd, Chuck Todd, who is hardly a conservative. I mean, this guy, he relishes ripping into President Trump, et cetera, et cetera. He has ripped into her and said that there just isn't um, 
There's no way these things are the same. There, there's just no, no, Mm-mm. not, not even close. Um, so uh, one of the things that we have to do is just continue to tell the truth. And that means, um, you know, calling her out every single time she makes one of these horrible statements. So I want to pivot over to Senator Blackburn. She's introduced a free speech resolution. And we talked a little bit about that. And then, of course, we should dive into just a little bit of uh, Senator Josh Hawley's um, proposal. He has a bill that he's proposing to eliminate the Section 230 protections for the Internet uh, social media providers, the platforms. The Section 230 protection just basically says they can't be sued for libel or defamation for things that other people post on their platforms. But if they're going to uh, police the content of the speech, then they should, and, and they're going to have bias from one side to the other, um, then then they shouldn't have those protections. So we asked Senator Hawley to come on the show, um, no response back from his publicist so or his staff. So we'll see what we can do about that. But Uh, Senator Blackburn is introducing a free speech resolution. So remember, she's from Tennessee, and she's introducing this resolution supporting free speech on American college campuses. But she's facing criticism from conservative organizations because, according to them, this doesn't do enough to protect students' constitutional rights. So she referenced a wide range of campus incidents from the hostility activists under the banner of Students for a Democratic Society faced in the 1960s to the smoke bombing of a pro-life speaker in Utah, UT Austin a few months ago. But the resolution, which is actually co-sponsored by several uh, conservative GOP senators, does not change law. It simply urges the Department of Education to enact policies that would protect free speech and underlines the Senate's support of students' constitutional rights. Now, the resolution comes just months after the Trump administration announced its intention to tie federal research dollars to First Amendment protections on college campuses. So students, and and I myself, I agree, the Senate can actually do much more than non-binding resolutions. The Senate should be seeking statutory reforms through a proposed reauthorization of the Higher Education Act. The Higher Education Act created a litany of federal student aid programs and provides a significant portion of the funding that goes to America's colleges and universities. Now, one of the things that would really make this just perfect is to have priorities, fiscal priorities focused on streamlining federal student aid, simplifying loan repayment, holding colleges accountable for repayment rates, holding colleges accountable for matriculation of students, like how many students actually begin and how many end, which would rat, it would radically change the kind of kids who get admitted. Um, and, and they would also be much more careful about how much college costs if they were held accountable. So, you know, the, these, are, these are good ideas. These are the kind of things that we need to see more of. The non-binding resolution, um, it's almost like it's just something to get your name out there. Um, so we don't want senators putting bills out that are non, non-binding resolutions. It's a waste of time. We're not paying them 178000 large a year for them to put out non-binding resolutions. And usually I like the stuff that she does, so this isn't personal with me. 
Uh, so we mentioned the, the illegal alien driver's licenses in New York City. Well, the New York County clerk there is refusing to give driver's licenses to illegals despite the new law. He didn't care. So it's Erie County Clerk Michael Mickey Kearns. He says he's not going to give illegals driver's licenses. He actually issued a letter to Erie County Attorney Michael Saragusa. He expressed his discontent with the law's inconsistency. He says, I will not be granting driver's licenses to illegal immigrants. And I expect to be sued by the state either way. He's one of the state's most outspoken critics of the bill. And public opinion appears to favor his point of view. A Siena College poll concluded that 53% of New Yorkers opposed green light legislation before it became law. Now, one of the organizers for green light, Jennifer Connor, who is a useful idiot and a nincompoop, says that the only reason to be against all of this is xenophobia and fear. Notice personal attacks are the way to vanquish your enemy when your ideas stink. She says, we will come after you if you don't uphold the law because of racism and xenophobia. Oh, good grief. So here, listen to these numbers. This, this is where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> Speaking about driver's licenses. Connor said there are more than 900,000 illegal aliens in New York. 200,000 of which are thought to be ready to apply for driver's licenses. So New York State Attorney General, another useful idiot and member of Nincompoops Incorporated, Letitia James, told the Daily Caller News Foundation that the law is well-crafted and contains ample protections for those who apply for driver's licenses. As the state's attorney and chief law enforcement officer, my office will vigorously defend it because I'm into protecting lawbreakers from, you know, law. But when citizens rear up and try to, you know, get a little something going, I'm ready to smack them down because they deserve it. But illegal aliens, not so much. So in other news, um, a U.S. Navy drone was hit by an Iranian air missile over the Strait of Hormuz in an unprovoked attack. Now, the Iranians are saying this is an indication that they're ready for war with us. And I'm thinking to myself, they don't understand what war means from our side. Like they don't they don't even know what we're like. So they shot down a drone that was idiotic. They shouldn't have done that. It was a U.S. Navy drone. And now the United States Navy is searching for the wreckage of one of our U.S. high altitude drones. They used a surface to air missile. To uh, hit it. Now, of course, we return fire verbally hours after they blasted our high altitude drone out of the sky. They say it's an unprovoked strike and that Tehran has issued false justifications for it. President Trump just tweeted out Iran made a very big mistake. That, so, you know, a couple hours after the, the downing. It's the most recent provocation in the region and I just, you know, they, they're claiming the drone was over Iranian airspace. American officials say that it was unequivocally in international airspace. I don't see Americans like striking them over a drone. But I wouldn't be surprised if the drone was worth millions of dollars, right? So let me tell you a couple things about the drone. 
Uh, it's a U.S. Navy RQ-4A Global Hawk drone. It was over international airspace and about 17 miles from Iran at the time. The drone provides real-time intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions over vast ocean and coastal regions, according to the U.S. military. Now, Iran tried to shoot down another drone but missed, and officials feel it is a must that they find the wreckage before Iranian forces recover it. So the RQ-4A drone has a wingspan of 130.9 feet. So, you know, if you're like me and when you think of a drone, because we have a couple, I got one for, uh, I think, for Mother's Day a couple years ago, one of the kids bought me a drone. And it's teeny tiny. Uh, It has a little camera in it, which I've never actually deployed. But I have flown it over our backyard a couple times. Our, Our youngest daughter actually likes flying it more than I do. And then we got my husband a little... Uh, AT fighter, it looks like one of the little fighters from Star Wars, um, and it's a drone, and we got him that for, I think, Father's Day, and again, youngest daughter loves flying that thing, but they're so teeny tiny, so this is a real drone, and it's huge. The range of this thing is 14,154 miles. It can travel speeds of 357 miles per hour. It can go to altitudes of up to 60,000 feet and has an endurance of 34 hours. So they can fly it around nonstop for 34 hours. Wow. Um, It is a part of the reinforcement efforts that have been put into play by President Trump last month. And oh my gosh. Okay, so just in your mind right now, for one second, imagine how much this drone must cost. And remember, just a second ago, I said it probably cost a couple million dollars. Would you believe that each of these drones, because with a wingspan of 130 feet, that means it's actually big enough for somebody to get in it, but it does, you know, you don't, humans don't fly these things. Each drone costs up to $180 million each. Oh my goodness. Don't you feel good when you hear that, when you're pumping out the tax dollars and you spend the first three or four months of the year working for the... U.S. federal government. That's your drone. Its name is RQ-4A Global Hawk. Nice. Oh, and in addition, it can loiter because it's super cool, y'all. This drone, this this drone can loiter for up to thirty hours at a time. Wow. All right. Well. Super cool military stuff, U.S. Navy stuff, awesome stuff. We're paying for it. So that's your drone and mine they shot down. What would have been awesome is if we'd shot down their second surface-to-air missile attempt to shoot down the drone, just obliterated it, and then blown up the uh, the surface-to-air missile site where the attack was launched from. And we do have that capability. And it would have been cool if we had used it. Unfortunate that we did not. Anyway, uh, so they, they, yeah, they got, they got what they wanted. They shot down one of our drones. They're actually kind of cool looking. It has like an Air Force One vibe with a really large nose with the extra tall nose at the front. The wings are super skinny. And then it has what looks to me like a single engine in the middle instead of an engine on each of the wings. And then, um, you know, tiny little tail fins. 
So uh, yeah, I'll put a link up to this story so you can see for yourself if if you want on Facebook. You can check it out. Um, all right. So since we're speaking of this uh, this downed drone and Iran's actions and their blustery statements they've made. Um, over at the Daily Signal, James Carafano, who's a good friend, good friend of, of mine from the Heritage Foundation, he's been writing about the war, rumors of war, etc. And so in his piece here, he's talking about President Trump's policy towards Iran, which tends to fuel endless speculation. Now, there's been a lot of public hand-wringing over the announcement that we're sending an additional thousand troops to the Gulf region, but we actually haven't given off any official signals that we're escalating the standoff with Tehran. Now, James Carafano spent 25 years in the Army, um, like my dad. My dad was in for 26 years. But it doesn't take a military career or a war college diploma to deconstruct what's going on. Um, a thousand troops is not enough to invade any place. Even if you count the additional troops deployed last month on the strength of the intelligence concerning the Iranian threat to shipping and potentially U.S. forces and assets in the Middle East, the number of U.S. boots on the ground there are far too small to suggest a buildup for any major offensive action. So force protection requires the kind of troop numbers that we're seeing right now. Force protection means defending U.S. forces in the region and policing the Hormuz Strait against malicious attacks on shipping. So... The reinforcements were sent at the request of Central Command. It's not an escalation for war. President Trump wouldn't be ready to do that. He's not a warmonger. He's not Hillary Clinton. All right. You have a fantastic weekend. God bless you. And uh, back with you on Monday. StaceyOnTheRight.com. <laughs>